Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pones Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia related topics. In early February, amidst large-scale international crisis around Ukraine, Vladimir Putin visited China and met with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. The immediate, or should we say formal, purpose of Putin's visit was the opening of the Winter Olympics. But the political commentary, of course, was focused on the meeting of the two leaders and the language of their joint communique. At least some of the prominent American commentators sounded strongly alarmed. Here are a few quotes. The joint statement might be looked back on as the beginning of Cold War II. This is Robert Daly, the director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Well, in fact, probably Cold War III would be more appropriate given that the current standoff between Russia and the United States is commonly referred to as a new Cold War. Alexander Vershbau, former United States ambassador to Russia, referred to this statement as a pretty striking step closer to an alliance. Angela Stint, a prominent Russia expert, said, I have never seen a joint statement from both leaders using this kind of language. They've joined forces. She added that the agreement between Russia and China puts Washington and its key leaders in a terrible bind. Apparently, this alarmed perception is provoked by fears that the United States might be pulled into a two-front war against China and Russia. I thought it would be important to listen to Russian-China experts whose perspective is obviously different. My guests today are two leading China experts, Alexander Gabuyev, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Moscow Center, and Vitas Pivak, Analyst of global consulting firm Control Risks. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Maria, for having us. Great to be with you. Uh, thank you. Before we come to a general assessment, whether we are indeed at the threshold of a second or third Cold War, or probably not yet, I'd like you to outline briefly the major points included in the Russian-Chinese communique, such as the, and I quote here, the intention to counter the interference of outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries, with a special mention of, I quote, color revolutions, and the opposition to further enlargement of NATO. What else is worthy of note as headlines in this joint statement? Alexander, probably you would start. I, th I think that for me, NATO was really the major news in the statement because the statements are pretty ritualistic and repetitive. If you look to previous joint statements issued summer 2021, when Putin and Xi had their virtual summit over celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Peace and Friendship Treaty, and many similar statements before. There are paragraphs that are borrowed, there are paragraphs that are rephrased. The tone gets increasingly more critical towards the United States and more self-defensive. So in this statement, there is a large section, most likely written by Chinese diplomats, where Moscow and Beijing say, no, wait a minute, we are democracies too. And like, why is the West monopolizing the right to call itself a democracy and define what democracy actually is? And then they go like, oh, we have very many great examples uh, of democratic governance in the past times in Russia and China. And that's exactly where the interesting point starts, but never, never gets an expansion, because I think that uh, we would all be very... 
uh, interested in actually reading what these glorious examples are. But nevertheless, I don't think that this is really important or big, uh, but China's support on Russia's stance with regard to NATO enlargements is really something new. We haven't seen that before. And I think that we should all pay attention to this change in Chinese official position. Would you also agree with the assessment that I mentioned that the communique is a striking step closer to an alliance? Or is that taking it too far? I think it takes it too far because an alliance relationship would imply that there is a legally binding obligation to come to defense or support for each other in case of attack on one party. That's part of Article 5 guarantees in NATO. That's part of U.S. security commitments in Asia. That's part of Russia's commitments to protect its allies as part of the collective security treaty organization. I don't think that Russia and China will come to the stage where there will be a formal security alliance because both are great powers and are religious about their strategic autonomy. So for China to do something around Taiwan, I don't think that it really counts on Russian support. And same if Russia is to launch a major military offensive in Ukraine, it doesn't need Chinese material support. And they also have issues where their perspectives diverge and there is an agreement to disagree. So I don't think that this is a step in alliance direction, but I think it's still a very important signaling of closeness on many geopolitical issues of the day, particularly those where, as in case of NATO, Russia has a lot of skin in the game, whereas China doesn't have that much skin in the game. And it's interesting that Xi Jinping came out and decided to support Vladimir Putin, particularly at this very interesting and important point for Russia's relations with the West. Right. Given the timing of this meeting and of the communique, the timing, of course, of the current crisis around Ukraine, apparently Putin's interest in having this joint statement now, and especially with a mention of NATO enlargement, is something that is intolerable or not acceptable. Uh, so uh, would you agree that Putin's interest was higher than his Chinese counterparts in having this statement? And was it Putin got enough support just as he expected? Can we speculate that he probably would like to have more? Uh, I think that it's uh, something that most people, at least in the Russian watching community who follow the relationship closely, uh, have not been expecting and that's really a new step uh, in Chinese assessment because there have been a lot of shared criticism of U.S. military activities, but that was all the time mirrored by, yes, Russia has some security concerns in, in Europe, and then China has security concerns in the Asia-Pacific, and there is AUKUS, and there is Quad. But here, going out to criticize NATO is really bold, at least diplomatic move. It's symbolic, so we shouldn't overestimate it. It doesn't mean that if Russia starts a military conflict, that China will come in a more forceful support. It's not also a surprise that the word Ukraine is not mentioned, because Russia's and Chinese views on this issue diverge. Russia doesn't consider Crimea as part of Russia. And if, God forbid, we see Russian tanks rolling over into Ukraine or Russian missiles uh, shooting targets inside Ukraine, that China will support it. I think that it will 
be stuck with its very predictable playbook of 2014 saying that all oh, peaceful talks and central role on the UN and their respect for international law are paramount to solving this crisis, but we definitely not go out and support Russia's military actions. Okay, so since you mentioned Ukraine and actually the, the fact that Ukraine is missing, the word Ukraine is missing and they communicate. So uh, do I understand you correctly that it would be wrong to expect a Ukraine-Taiwan quid pro quo? I'm convinced about that. I don't think that China needs to align its timing, as some commentary in the West suggests, of any moves around Taiwan to Russia's actions. It's not that China sees an opportunity and distraction for, uh, for the White House and other parts of the U.S. national security bureaucracy that Russian possible uh, military intervention will create and they will rush to kind of size Taiwan. I think that China has its own timetable to make the military option for regaining control over the island really credible. And that takes a lot of effort with military ships and submarines and missiles and landing operation and creating a credible nuclear deterrent to prevent an option for the U.S. to intervene, cyber capabilities, intelligence capabilities. So I think that more credible, I'm not a military expert, but people who watch this space much more closely than I do would say that China would need at least a decade to create this option and to make it like really functional and sharpen all of its tools. So no, I don't see any relationship between the two conflicts and I don't see any quid pro quo. Okay. Vita, the communique does not go into detail of economic cooperation between the two countries. What is your general assessment of the economic ties between Russia and China? And of course, feel free if you want to add something to what Alexander has already said. Right. Thank you, Maria. The first thing that I wanted to say is that the communique didn't really supposed to have a part on economic relations and being a diplomatic document, it is not really supposed to concern any specific trade contracts or any agreements in this sphere. But since that Vladimir Putin was accompanied by, as usual, by many representatives of the Russian energy companies during this visit, a few agreements between Gazprom precisely and Rosneft and their Chinese counterparts were signed during this visit, which wasn't too impressive. So this communique that Putin and Xi Jinping issued after the summit did not really supposed to have a economic section because it's essentially a diplomatic document in and of itself. But since Vladimir Putin was accompanied by a number of representatives of energy companies, major energy companies of Russia, precisely Gazprom and Rosneft, several agreements were indeed signed during this summit. And that was a essential outcome, economic outcome for this visit for Russia. So precisely Gazprom signed a gas supply contract with China as well as Rosneft is going to supply a considerable amount of oil to China in the coming years. Those contracts are not too impressive considering the past of the China-Russia summits. For example, the 2015 agreement on power of Siberia uh, was way more impressive than that, than the one that was signed this year. But these two 
contracts still solidify Russia's position as the main energy provider for China, which will be more and more important in the future considering China's energy transition to low-carbon economy. But what can I say about the general economic situation between the two powers? The economic cooperation is indeed very practical and unlike the geopolitical realm of this relationship, all those deals were indeed supposed to happen regardless of the closeness of the relationship between Moscow and Beijing. And this basically underscores the complementarity of the Russia and China's economy, where Russia is the energy provider and China is the main importer of Russian hydrocarbons. Okay, a few years ago, grand plans of Russia's eastward turn were announced and the words power of Siberia sounded really triumphant as a very big plan for the future and the plan of Russia to become China's major energy suppliers. Would you say that on this path, more has been achieved and announced, less has been achieved? Do you think the fanfare a few years ago were justified? Well, since 2015, Russia's position as an economic partner of China has significantly improved, and that is a big success for Russia, I would say. Russia is the second largest provider of oil to China these days and the third provider of natural gas, if we count together the natural pipeline gas and the liquefied natural gas that is supplied to China from the Russian Arctic. And this is a big achievement, obviously, for Russia. But still, this basically highlights the fact that Russia's export to China is very much dependent on hydrocarbons. And there is a significant aspiration in Moscow to diversify its export to China, for example, by exporting more poultry or grain or something of a more added value. But there are certain limitations to that. As I said, the economic cooperation between the two countries is highly practical and basically on the ground like. And it appears that the Chinese companies, the Chinese market is not as welcoming to Russian producers as, for example, Chinese politicians are for Vladimir Putin. And Russian producers, they find themselves being unable to adequately compete on the Chinese market, and that is a big limitation for this economic relationship. Another part of the economic relationship that has gained significant attention is the financial cooperation between the two countries. They have both championed the principle of uh, de-dollarization of, um, of the bilateral trade, and indeed the share of dollar, of the US dollar, is decreasing in the bilateral trade between China and Russia, but it is going on by the increasing of the share of euro. And the share of the national currencies in the bilateral trade is still uh, not mm, too great, but it is approaching 30%, which is still higher than even five or seven years ago. But still, the, this financial cooperation in this regard is as very practical limitations that are that ruble is very volatile and is very dependent on the geopolitical situation around Russia as we can see very clearly these days 
And RMB, Renminbi, uh, the Chinese national currency, is not fully convertible. The Chinese government is controlling the capital account of its country and does not allow to repatriate capital from China that easily. And it is not likely to ease this rotation of its financial market just for Russia anytime soon. Okay, can you please say a few words about the um, pricing issue? Of course, I mean the um, hydrocarbons and Russia is a major supplier of China. A lot has been said and written by observers about the low price that Russia is selling its hydrocarbons to China cheaply. What would you say about that? So the main discussion is about the natural gas that being supplied to China through power of Siberia pipeline. And a lot of this discussion has been spurred by the fact that when the agreement was signed, Gazprom didn't disclose the contract price, referring to some commercial secret. And this basically drove analysts to a lot of speculation about the actual price that China is paying for the Russian gas. And for a long time, there was a view that China is underpaying for Russian gas. And indeed, the latest available data from the Chinese customs allows us to see that uh, the Russian gas that is being supplied through uh, power of Siberia is the cheapest that China is buying on the international market. But the recent figures released by Gazprom, they were released in at the end of 2021, they revealed that China is paying about 150 US dollars for 1,000 cubic meters of natural gas that is supplied through the power of Siberia pipeline. And this price is basically within normal for Gazprom if you compare it with European contracts that this company is having going on. So basically, we cannot really say that Gazprom is not receiving well, something or is basically giving the gas for free or anything. But I would still say that the Russian gas is the cheapest that for China on the international market. And since uh, it is likely that China's consumption of natural gas is going to increase, it is likely that Russia's position on the natural gas market in China will strengthen also because of the pricing advantage. Okay. Alexander, it is universally recognized that China is on the rise and may in conceivable future become on a par with the United States even. Russia cannot make such claims. And thus, there's a commonly mentioned risk of Russia evolving as China's younger partner, which is hardly an attractive prospect. How can Russia avoid it? And what is Russia, the Russian government, doing in this direction? And does this risk work as a kind of should we say, deterrent against excessive rapprochement? Well, first of all, Russia is not an equal to its former partners of preference, being the United States or European Union. And I, th I think that if you're looking for equality in international relationship, it doesn't necessarily exist. And it also very dependent on which metrics do you want to apply? Is Germany a junior partner of the United States? Yes, it is. Is it very unhappy about it? Maybe. Does it get some pragmatic benefits? Sure. So I think that when it comes to Russia and China, there is obviously no equality for comprehensive 
national power, particularly measured through economics. But the fact is that Russia is still a great power. It has a pretty sizable economy and pretty diverse economy. It's more one-dimensional when we look at the Russian exports. It's much more diverse when you look domestically at the market structure. It's still a very potent military power. It can do something that China is still unable to do. For example, launch a U.S.-style military conflict in the Middle East and win or come to rescue its client state in Kazakhstan and also be pretty successful. Uh, so here, I think that China treats Russia as a great power that's weaker, that's in long-term decline while once China is on the rise, but also treats it very carefully, knowing that Russians are very proud, that they have an oversized ego, and that this ego shouldn't be wounded. Second part to this, which is also important, is whether you have real disagreements where your power asymmetry can be turned into leverage. That's been the problem with the West. As Russia became increasingly more authoritarian, the leverage was used to criticize Russia and then to try to change some of Russia's behavior. We don't see China doing anything of that sort because one of the stabilizing factors and pillars of the current relationship is that both states are authoritarian. Why would Xi Jinping care about who poisoned Alexei Navalny? Why would Vladimir Putin care about uh, human rights in Hong Kong? So absence of this political arguments is also making the issue of who is a junior partner and who's a senior partner in the relationship far less important. So this leverage is really important in commercial deals. And I think that Vita was spot on saying that China gave Russia an okay price formula for power Siberia based on what we know, but it could have been better. And if not, Russian desire to sign contract sooner rather than later because of Crimean annexation and conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Russia could probably be in a better position. That will change ultimately as China gets more and more leverage. And the risk for Russia is then 10, 20 years down the road as it continues on its current path of confrontation with the West. China will be not only senior or more powerful partner, but it will be basically the only partner that Russia has on technology, on market access for its hydrocarbons, and it, its role will be outside. It will be much bigger than Europe used to play. And then definitely China will be tempted to use this leverage against Russia. So I think that this is a much more important issue that this conversation, who is junior and who is senior, as obsessed about hierarchy in the relationships as, as the Russians are. And that pragmatic issue is not being fully addressed by the Kremlin. Part of this is confrontation with the West. Part of this is lack of genuine effort to modernize and diversify the economy, which has political considerations as its root cause. Uh, so Russia is doing something on the margins. It's trying to build partnerships with other Asian countries like India and some of the U.S. allies, even like Japan or South Korea. Private companies are trying to produce their resources in form that has many customers. For example, Yamal LNG run by Novatech produces LNG out of Yamal gas so it can sell it to as many customers as Novatech chooses and sees profitable, whereas Gazprom is planning to build more and more pipeline that lead only to one customer, China. So I think that this leverage issue is much more important than the status issue. And sorry for a long answer to your concise question. 
Right. I would like you to probably elaborate a little bit more on this. Russia wanted rapprochement and wanted better relations sooner rather than later. We saw this at the time of Crimea annexation, and I think we probably see this again now. Russia is amidst a crisis in its relations with the West, and the, the current meeting between the two leaders, the Chinese and the Russian, is probably something that Russia needs sooner, needs now, needs more than China does. So do you think there is a potential weakness in that Russia needs better relations, closer relations sooner than China does? I agree with you. That's a source of vulnerability, but I think it's, it's a familiar source, and that derives from the overall asymmetry that we've just talked about, is that Russia is a weaker and needier partner. China absolutely needs good partnership with Russia. And there are a couple of instances where Russia is totally an indispensable power. And surprisingly, one of the most important elements here is that Russia is the only Chinese neighbor that's not afraid of China, and that can afford to have kind of pragmatic normal and sane relationship with China where everybody else looks for partners to provide deterrence against possible Chinese incursions. But nevertheless, I think that the big takeaway from 2014 is that Russia is much more pragmatic now. It's more realistic on what to expect from the Chinese side. Back in 2014, as there was this very emotional decision to annex Crimea and then fuel war in Donbass, there were first Western sanctions introduced, Russia looked for a gesture to show that it cannot be isolated and that it stands tall, not only alone as a single, but also in a partnership with a rising superpower. And here, all of the deals around power of Siberian, resuming military sales were born. And I remember that time quite well. There was this outsized expectation that, oh, once we open our embrace, China will rush and cover Russia with billions of US dollars of investments and loans and will provide technology, then they'll do everything to support us in confrontation with the West. These hopes didn't materialize. China indeed was helpful and indeed did provide some market access, some loans, some technology, but it was doing that very carefully in order not to alienate the US and Europe back in the time. And it was also doing that, being very pragmatic and looking for profit. Probably a couple of deals have been political with China buying influence in the Kremlin by targeting people like Gennady Timchenko or other business people close to Vladimir Putin. But by and large, these outsized expectations have never materialized. And that when in a mood swing, like in 2017, and you talk to senior people in Moscow, and it was like, oh, no, China's not a friend of us. They're kind of very selfish. My impression now, talking to both officials and business people, is that the temperature has returned to normalcy. People say, well, China's a great power. Yes, they are a partner. They're maybe a friend. We definitely have common adversary being the U.S., but China is, after all, after its own interests. It's not love. It's not that they will blindly do whatever we ask them to, but it's that they seek profit and their hand is stronger than ours. So it's normal to expect that we need to make some concessions if we want to get some deals fast. And I think that this pragmatic attitude is far healthier for the relationship. That's something we've seen a couple of years back. 
Okay, Vitor, so Alexander is talking about Russia becoming more pragmatic and realistic as it applies to its relations with China. Do you agree with that looking from the economic perspective? And also, if you could please elaborate a bit about this junior partner problem. Is this problem being overcome by Russia in the economic sphere? I fully agree with everything that Alexander has pointed out. And I think if we look from the economic point of view, the overall practicality of the Russia-China relationship can be seen, well, in the most clear way. I would say that people in Moscow, they're fully aware of the fact that Russia indeed is just an energy supplier to China. And that China, from the economic point of view is not that dependent on Russia than the other way around. And also, if you just look on the figures, Russia is not even a top 10 trading partner for China, whereas China is the number one single country trading partner for Russia. And I think people in Moscow are pretty comfortable with this imbalance, but there are attempts to somehow diversify the bilateral trade, to export more non-hydrocarbon related products to China, such as, as I have said, poultry or grain, or even more highly value-added products such as confectionery goods or something like that. So there, there is an ambition to diversify this relationship and also when we're talking about diversification, when it comes to investment, if in 2015, Russia desperately needed Chinese investments for the development of its energy projects, for example, in the Russian Arctic. Right now, we can see that Russia is trying to diversify its energy investment partners away from China in order to not to basically put all the eggs into China's basket when it comes to strategically important energy projects in the Arctic. And I would say that Russia is trying to put as much more practical approach uh, to the economic relations as it can, but there are obvious limitations to that cooperation. And I think one of the biggest achievements of the economic relationship over the last few years is that people in Moscow understand that very clearly and do not have inflated expectations of China in terms of investments, trade, or any kind of financial cooperation. Okay, I would also ask you a kind of parallel question as applies to China. Are there also economic factors holding China from a full-fledged alliance with Russia, looking from the economic perspective again? After all, China has huge trade, large-scale trade with other countries in other parts of the world. Right. But I mean, economic alliance, this name is not really applicable in this situation because Russia is not very interesting for China in this regard. Yes, it is an important energy supplier. That is obviously true. And Russia's role for China in terms of energy supplies is growing, considering the fact that China is embarking upon the transition to low carbon economy. But when it comes to other spheres of economic cooperation, Russia is a virtually non-existent player for China. And I do not think that China is actually viewing Russia as anything more than an energy supplier for now. 
And what's more, people in Russia, people in the biggest uh, Russian companies, as well as in the government there, they understand it really well. And they're working towards changing the situation. For example, the Russian officials have worked towards decreasing non-tariff barriers for Russian exports to China, and they're trying to somehow diversify the export of Russian producers to China through these means. Okay, thank you. Alexander, let me get to you now. There's also a question about regional issues. The joint statement mentioned common adjacent region. Would you please elaborate on that? What is implied? Apparently, uh, they were talking about Central Asia, correct? How important is this region for the two countries and how do they cooperate there? I think that there has been a notion about if we are looking for wedges between Russia and China or issues that really will drive them apart and make the relationship collapse. Central Asia, I think, is prominently figured in analysis of many people as the region that they share. I think that Mongolia is uh, much more under Chinese influence in terms of economy. Korean Peninsula is also much more China-reliant and China-dependent. Russia is not a big player there. The other big player is obviously the U.S. So Central Asia is a region where Russia's power is flat or declining according to conventional narrative and then China's power is on the rise and then the clash is imminent. I think that what's important to understand is that the shared priorities between Moscow and Beijing in Central Asia are really important. There is an overlap in what kind of political setup for local regimes they both want to see. They want to see the same enlightened, secular, authoritarian regimes, similar to what President Takayev runs in Kazakhstan or President Mirziyoyev in Uzbekistan. They don't want to see any Western and particularly U.S. influence. Military presence is anathema, but also like larger cultural or political influence is also seen as something very unwelcome. And between... Their security and economic interests, I think that security trumps economy for both of them. But when it comes to economy, there is only as much as Russia can do because it's largely a competitor of all five of the countries in global markets. They all supply commodities. Russia is bigger, it's more diversified, but as an exporter, it's by and large a commodities exporter. Same with all of the five republics of Central Asia where China is just a natural complementary partner that has a giant marker for be it oil and gas and metals or fertilizers or grain. So over time, China will inevitably become number one trading partner, number one investor and number one loan provider. But Russia will still maintain its very unique role as an outside security provider, which is demonstrated by the operation in Kazakhstan, it's not the Chinese economic cloud in the region mechanically transforms into more political power and military power. There are certain limitations to that, and I think that the biggest limitation is definitely Chinese policy in Xinjiang, which has alienated 
local populations, both on ethnic and religious reasons. And if local countries want to hedge against rising Chinese power, their only natural hedge for now is Russia. Okay. My other question, one before last, actually has to do with something that was mentioned in the joint communique as a matter of serious concern, and that was AUKUS. How important is this, and is it new, this serious concern that Russia and China share about AUKUS, about those three countries? I think that it's the first time that AUKUS pops up in a joint statement because the previous joint statement was drafted before AUKUS was brought into existence. I think that for China, it's a source of graver concern because AUKUS is, despite all of the pronouncements of the founding countries, is aimed at checking Chinese military power. But Russia also has its own concerns because ultimately its major security tool in the Asia-Pacific are submarines. It's not conventional Navy. And you have more competitors in that realm with the rival of Australian nuclear power subs. So there are both questions about non-proliferation, but there is also a question about beefing up of military alliance where U.S., Australia, and U.K. are Russia's major adversaries. So I think that the concern is real. The concern is shared, but it's very likely that China will do much more about it than Russia. Okay. And now we get to uh, my final question. So what is your vision for the conceivable future of Russia-China relations? You were talking about it earlier in our conversation, but to summarize, I would like you to also look at it from the perspective that raises concerns in the United States, whether or not the United States might indeed be pulled into a two-front war against China and Russia. I don't think that the risk of two-front war is real. I think that President Biden was very clear on the fact that the U.S. will not send any military help, like troops on the ground or any fighting capabilities to support Ukraine beyond weapons and trainers and maybe some intelligence sharing and help. And we see that very visibly in the current crisis. As the administration believes, based on intelligence that it has, that Russian invasion become a matter of time, all of the military instructors are being pulled out. So I don't think that we're going to see any kinetic war between Russia and the United States. And I really want to be right on this prediction. Otherwise, it will be disasters. China and U.S. much more questionable because much more is at stake. There is no firm legal obligation to defend Taiwan set in stone. There might be just enough Chinese military pressure to force the island to surrender. But I think that two-front war is an unlikely scenario. What is likely, and I think that what is consequential for the United States, is that both parties are amplifying each other and helping each other to become more potent in confrontation with the United States. China is definitely the peer competitor. It's primary game in town. And I think that what happens to Russia boosting Chinese capabilities is more important to American policymakers and senior military planners than the other way around. And here we see a very direct result of Crimean annexation and Russia's pivot to China is that Russia started to, again, 
like in the 90s, to sell sophisticated weapons to China. We know of two large deals of S-400 surface-to-air missiles, MSU-35 fighter jets. Later on, cooperation between Russia and China was sanctioned as part of countering American adversaries through Sanctions Act in 2017. And the State Department has, and Treasury have even introduced some sanctions against high-ranking PLA generals for conducting business with Russia. So now all of the military industrial cooperation is in stealth mode. So Putin sometimes drops big news at Valdai conference. He said in 2019 that Russia is helping China to develop a critical part of its nuclear deterrent, the early warning system for incoming missile attack. In 2021, he said that Russia and China are actually jointly developing some new weapon types, which is also unprecedented. So it's Russia helping the PLA to become a much more potent and much more dangerous force for America and its allies in the Western Pacific. And I think that this comes front and center to any U.S. concerns about Russia-China relationship. And then there is also a cooperation on non-military issues, but have which have dual use, particularly to, uh, civilian technology. It's a fact that the administration is pursuing a policy of strengthening Huawei and destroying as many intellectual and scientific partnerships as Huawei has in the West and with America's critical allies like Israel. So Huawei is pivoting to Russia, where they still have a large pool of IT specialists and mathematicians that are available to them. Huawei has, since Trump's sanctions, tripled its research staff in Russia. And I suppose that a lot is going on also undercover. So we don't, we don't have the ability to really research what's going on because it's wrapped in secrecy. And on the Russian side, China is not the lifeline that's keeping Putin's regime afloat. It's the brilliant work of people at the central bank and the Ministry of Finance that are making the economy more sanction-proof than it used to be. Yes, Russia economy is taking a huge blow from the sanctions, and yes, people's dissatisfaction is growing, but the regime is still afloat and has a lot of fuel to go. So China is not crucial to this effort, but it's definitely part of that, particularly on technology, keywords, chips, and semiconductors if U.S. export controls are enforced. And also China is helping to diminish Russia's dependency on US dollar and euro, which is also very handy in the case of conflict. So I think that there are elements that should worry US national security establishment, and there are not that many tools available to affect the relationship. There are not that many advantages that I see to plant in order to split the alliance or the quasi-alliance because it's not a formal alliance. As long as both remain authoritarian regimes, they have complementary structures of the economy and they're not at conflict about the past. And China is careful in using its leverage, but not overdoing to wound Russian ego. The relationship has very solid foundations. Okay. So I think the serious reason for the U.S. security establishment to worry about is the main conclusion from what you say. Thank you very much. Thank you for this conversation. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you.